Number one, put God first. Put God first in everything you do. Everything that you think you see in me, everything that I've accomplished, everything that you think I have, and I have a few things. Everything that I have is by the grace of God. Understand that. It's a gift. 40 years ago, March 27th, 1975, it was 40 years ago, uh, just this past March, I was flunking out of college. I had a 1.7 grade point average. I hope none of you can relate. <laughs> I had a 1.7 grade point average. I was sitting in my mother's beauty shop. They still call it beauty shop now? What they call it now? Yeah, I was sitting in the beauty parlor. I was sitting in my mother's beauty parlor and I'm looking in the mirror and I see behind me this woman under the dryer. And every time she looked up, she, every time I looked up, she was looking at me, just looking me in the eye. And I didn't know who she was and I said, you know, she said, somebody give me a pen, give me a pencil, I have a prophecy. March 27, 1975, she said, boy, you are gonna travel the world and speak to millions of people. Now mind you, I flunked out of college I'm thinking about joining the army. I didn't know what I was going to do. And she's telling me I'm going to travel the world and speak to millions of people. Well, I have traveled the world. And I have spoke to millions of people. But that's not the most important thing, the success that I had. The most important thing is that what she taught me and what she told me that day has stayed with me since. I've been protected. I've been directed. I've been corrected. I've kept God in my life and has kept me humble. I didn't always stick with him, but he always stuck with me. So stick with him in everything you do. If you think you want to do what you think I've done, then do what I've done and stick with God. Number two, fail big. That's right. Fail big. Today is the beginning of the rest of your life, and it can be, it can be very frightening. It, it's a new world out there. It's a mean world out there, and you only live once. So do what you feel passionate about, passionate about. Take chances professionally. Don't be afraid to fail. There's an old IQ test was nine dots, and you had to draw five lines with a pencil within these nine dots without lifting the pencil. The only way to do it was to go outside the box. So don't be afraid to go outside the box. Don't be afraid to think outside the box. Don't be afraid to fail big, to dream big. But remember, dreams without goals are just dreams. And they ultimately fuel disappointment. So have dreams, but have goals, life goals, yearly goals, monthly goals, daily goals. I try to give myself a goal every day. Sometimes just to not curse somebody out. <laughs> Simple goals, but have goals. And understand that to achieve these goals, you must apply discipline, and consistency in order to achieve your goals you must apply discipline which you've already done 
and consistency every day, not just on Tuesday and miss a few days. You have to work at it every day. You have to plan every day. You've heard the saying, we don't plan to fail. We fail to plan. Hard work works. Working really hard is what successful people do. And in this text, tweet, twerk world that you've grown up in, remember, just because you're doing a lot more doesn't mean you're getting a lot more done. Remember that. Just because you're doing a lot more doesn't mean you're getting a lot more done. Don't confuse movement with progress. My mother told me, she said, yeah, because you can run in place all the time and never get anywhere. So continue to strive, continue to have goals, continue to progress. Number three, you'll never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. I'll say it again. You'll never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. I don't care how much money you make, you can't take it with you. And it's not how much you have. It's what you do with what you have. We all have different talents. Some of you will be doctors, some lawyers, some scientists, some educators, some nurses, some teachers. Yeah, okay. <laughs> some preachers. The most selfish thing you can do in this world is help someone else. Why is it selfish? Because the gratification, the goodness that comes to you, the good feeling, the good feeling that I get from helping others, nothing's better than that. Not jewelry, not big house I have, not the cars, but the, the, it's the joy. That's where the joy is in helping others. That's where the success is. Finally, I pray that you put your slippers way under the bed tonight so that when you wake up in the morning you have to get on your knees to reach them and while, you, when, while you're down there say thank you for grace thank you for mercy thank you for understanding thank you for wisdom thank you for parents Thank you for love. Thank you for kindness. Thank you for humility. Thank you for peace. Thank you for prosperity. Say thank you in advance for what's already yours. That's how I live my life. That's where I, why I am. One of the reasons why I am today. Say thank you in advance for what is already yours. True desire in the heart for anything good is God's proof to you sent beforehand to indicate that it's yours already. I'll say it again. True desire in the heart, that itch that you have, whatever it is you want to do, that thing that you want to do to help others and to, to grow and to make money, that desire, that itch, that's God's proof to you sent beforehand already to indicate that it's yours. And anything you want good, you can have. So claim it. Work hard to get it. When you get it, reach back 
pull someone else up. Each one, teach one. Don't just aspire to make a living. Aspire to make a difference. John chapter 2, starting with verse 1. The next day there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told him they have no more wine. Dear woman, that's not, not our problem. Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. And when the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out. Take it to the master of the ceremonies. So the servant followed his instructions. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best until now. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. What an interesting way to get a start. What a kind of curious way for Jesus to enter into ministry. We're kind of going through up to Easter, a biography of Jesus' life, so we can't obviously talk about everything that happens, but this is a real curious moment, the first miracle Jesus does. He doesn't raise somebody from the dead. He doesn't walk on water. He doesn't heal a leper. He doesn't restore somebody's sight. He doesn't have this amazing interaction with a woman, a Samaritan woman at a well, and then a whole community comes to give their life to him. He turns water into wine. It almost seems like it doesn't fit. It's not life or death, right? It's not somebody needing this desperate healing. It almost seems like it doesn't fit. Like why, if Jesus is going to do this first? Because obviously it's intentional. As a matter of fact, those that have studied this out say there's no way that this is a made-up story because if you make up a story, you don't make up this story. You do raise somebody from the dead if you want to be prominent. That's the first story that you go to. You go to Lazarus or you go to a different story. But this story seems so curious that there's got to be a lot more to it. And somehow we think it's just like here Jesus is just tending to a problem of social embarrassment. Because here's the deal. I'm a little bit different than our weddings. These are big celebrations. These weddings are celebrations that last days on end, three to seven days long of celebration. We come to a place in the wedding, maybe the third day or so, and the wine runs out. It's a big embarrassment. 
Franz has not planned well. The wedding has run out of wine, and now everybody is, what do you do? You just go home. Nobody's going to die from this. You just, the party's over. That's what happens when the supplies run out. You just leave. It's like party's over. But in this story has absolutely everything. The core of what we find and need to know about the good news. It's no mistake that this is the first story. In this story, the good news of the kingdom is here. We see who Jesus came to be. We see what Jesus came to do, what Jesus comes to offer, and how each one of us can receive it. The first thing, there's these statements. Every statement in this story is thick with meaning. Every every title given to a person. Every interaction is just huge. We can't get to all of it, but I want to get to a few of the things. The first thing is that there's a master of ceremonies. This is kind of like, this is the life of the party. This person is hired to make sure that this party, which will last for days, is full of life and celebration and enjoyment. It's this person's responsibility, kind of like a wedding planner on steroids. This is the person that's charismatic, but also understands everything that everybody needs in the party. The master of ceremonies comes to this place where they have now run out, which is not only an embarrassment for the master of ceremonies, but is an embarrassment for the group and the bride and the family. When Jesus says, this really isn't our doing, what he's essentially saying is, this isn't our family, mom. This is not our embarrassment to deal with. But what Jesus communicates and what we see when we see that the master of ceremony cannot keep up with the demand of wine at the party, we see who Jesus came to be. What is communicated is who Jesus is to each and every person, each and every one of us, and every person that's lived in history. He is the ultimate master of ceremony. He is the ultimate party leader, the life of the party. See, Jesus doesn't just, Jesus doesn't just provide wine. He provides maybe 180 gallons of top-notch wine. Jesus doesn't just make this an amazing wedding. Jesus takes it to a level that none of them have ever experienced before. Where man and women run short and fail, where we run out of resources, the first thing God wants to communicate to us through this story is that God is a God of abundance. That there is a wedding of abundance. There is this provision from God that is endless. That God provides where you can't even believe that there's a provision to be had. In Isaiah 25, verse 6 through 9, it says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow and well-aged wines strained clear. He will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over the peoples, the sheet that is spread over nations. He will swallow up death forever. forever. Then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces, and the disgrace of his people will be taken away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. 
It will be said on that day, lo, this is our God. We have waited for him and that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This is the God that Jesus immediately communicates that he is. I am here and I am the God of abundance and abundant life. Where you think there is a lack of provision, God wants you to know that there is nothing impossible from him, for, for him. All around this region, for instance, this morning, there are people that are not here worshiping. They're not in churches worshiping. And one of the main reasons, especially in our culture, that they're not worshiping is because they feel like all that Jesus does is ask to give up things. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. And there's no doubt that that's the clear, one of the clear messages of the gospel But do not, do not in any way, and what Jesus is communicating here, do not sell short the abundance of the kingdom of God, the provision of the kingdom of God. God is not a God of just suck it up and say no. God is a God of celebration. God is a God that later on in John chapter 10, 10 would be the Jesus that would say, the enemy comes to rob and kill and destroy from your life, but understand this, I have come that you would have life and you would have it to the full, that there would be abundance in your life. I am the God of celebration. I am the God that can take wine and overwhelm you with, or take water and overwhelm you with an abundance of wine till it's coming out of your ears, it'll be so amazing. This is the God that you serve. He is the Lord of the feast, and he has come. The first thing he shows us here is he has come to bring joy. Jesus brings joy to each and every one of us if we can tap into that. The second thing we see is this statement where Jesus says, dear woman, what concern is this to you and me? My time has not yet come. Some versions say my hour has not yet come. This is what Jesus has come to do. This is the good news of the gospel. Some of us read this story or have read this story and we've thought that Jesus literally is at this wedding and then Mary says to Jesus, hey, they've run out of wine. And Jesus says, well, it's not time for me to do a miracle yet. And then he kind of ponders it for a few minutes and says, okay, I guess I'll do it, mom. I'll do this miracle if you insist I do the miracle. But the language is too clear here. When Jesus says that his time has yet not come, it's as if his mind is on something else. It's on his own wedding that's spoken of throughout scripture. It's about this bride that is the church that he will welcome one day and celebrate with himself. He is the bridegroom. He's thinking of his own wedding, the terminology, it's not my time, it's not his time to go to a cross yet and to be murdered at a cross and then resurrected from the dead and one day celebrate the consummation of his wedding with the church at this huge celebration. See, we don't just relate to Jesus as a king relates to subjects or as a shepherd relates to sheep. 
We don't just relate to Jesus as a friend relates to a brother or a close brother. We don't just relate to Jesus as a father to children. We, we relate to Jesus, and this becomes clear in this scripture, as a husband relates to a wife and a wife relates to a husband. It's a bridegroom to a bride. In Matthew earlier, Jesus is asked at one point, why aren't, your, why aren't all your disciples and friends, why aren't they fasting? And Jesus says, because when the bridegroom is around, when there's a wedding party in town, we're not fasting then. We don't do that because we're celebrating. Jesus proclaims himself as the groom. A couple chapter or next chapter after this, John the Baptist is asked by his followers, why in the world when you were baptizing people on the other or in the Jordan and Jesus himself was even baptized, why are all of these people now following him? Isn't that bothering you? It was at that place that John the Baptist said, at this place is where I will decrease and he must increase And John told us all in in the book of John chapter 3, near the end, the bride is for the bridegroom. In other words, John was saying that's the bridegroom. Jesus himself is the bridegroom. It's interesting when when you're a pastor because you're around a lot of weddings and you get to see it more than other people. And there's a couple of things that seem to happen. The first thing that happens is the groom, there's that moment where the bride comes down the aisle. And then in most weddings, there'll be that space where the family is going to speak their blessing, release the, the, the daughter to the husband, and here's the groom. Claire and I have stood there doing these weddings so many times you can almost feel the guy, Josiah, our youngest son. He literally didn't wait for us to say, Who's, who wants to bless this wedding, this marriage? Josiah just went down. He wasn't waiting. And that's the sense you get when you read this scripture is Jesus just can't even wait to be with his bride. The other thing that happens is no matter what the bride looks like, the groom is just overwhelmed by her beauty. And generally, that's, that's pretty consistent. But sometimes I think we all have to admit that the bride coming down the aisle, you're like, really? Is that the outfit? Look at this outfit. This was Yves Saint Laurent. Now, that is the kind of outfit that only a groom can love, Right? And sometimes we feel like, how can Jesus love me? We are a bride that only a groom can love. And we are broken. And as the church, we have not been perfect. And we come up short at times. But you had better believe that Jesus is just wild about the church The third statement that we see is Jesus tells him to fill the jars up. Some versions say, fill the jars up to the brim. And it's what he has to offer. And it speaks to this issue of expectation. I love this story because expectation, you can expect things from God around small things. It seems like a small thing, wine at a wedding, 
It seems like it's a trivial thing. It isn't raising somebody from the dead. But understand this today, that you may have concerns and desires and thoughts that you're saying, I just don't think they're important enough to even ask God about. I'm here to tell you that God is concerned about even the small things in your life and in my life. That you can go to God and you can ask him to move into that place because it is important Don't allow your expectation to wane. It also speaks to the fact that we can expect large things. 180 gallons of wine is a lot of wine, no matter how big the party is. And nothing in your life is beyond God's ability to move and to change. And you may, have be, you may on this day be discouraged and feel like there's some things in my life that go beyond what God is even going to do for me. But understand, this is the God of, of the 180-gallon wine miracle. That there is nothing that is too big and difficult for him There is no mountain too large in your life for God to not be able to turn it around. And God would invite us to raise our expectation. The other thing that he would, when it comes to expectation, some of you just feel weary. You feel weary. You've grown weary in expecting a miracle. Imagine these servants, 180 gallons. These are empty pitchers. 180 gallons, they've got to go to some probably a hand well or somewhere else to to get buckets of water to fill these these pitchers that are so huge. 180 gallons worth. So they are there are there is multiple trips to the well, multiple going back and forth. We don't know when the water turns to wine, but we know it's not before it gets into the pitchers. And imagine them walking back and forth and wondering, is this even making a difference? What, are we, what is he asking us to do? All they know is he said, fill it to the brim. How is your expectation? I had a conversation with Pastor Carlo in Haiti yesterday, and he told me that the last hurricane in, in Haiti, it was devastating. It was a devastating hurricane to Haiti, and in particular in Belix, which is one of the churches and areas that we work with, and he said it was just like devastation. The agricultural uh, uh, devastation was incredible, and he said we were so, so uh, just saddened, and, and our, our expectation was just waning, and we were just so disappointed. And he said, here we are just literally a couple of months beyond that, and he said, it's incredible what's happening. He said, there's miracles of biblical proportions happening agriculturally. He said, I have never seen bigger coconuts in my life than, he said, it's like the hurricane-infused moisture into the agriculture. He said, it's more green than it's ever been. The, the, the produce is bigger than we've ever seen. It's more, it's more abundant than we've ever seen out of devastation, God has done the miraculous. Don't you ever feel like God cannot turn that thing that feels like a devastation on this day into one of the greatest miracles of your life? In Numbers chapter 13, Caleb and Joshua come. They've been sent out to spy the land. The scripture says, 
that the fruit was so abundant in the promised land that it literally, one vine of grapes took two men, two men in a pole. It's like two men in a truck, two men in a pole with the grapes hanging in between. That's the only way they could carry it. It was so amazing. How is your expectation? Ten spies didn't care how amazing the fruit was. All they saw was the problems. But Joshua and Caleb, who would ultimately be the only two out of those 12 that would enter into the promise, said, surely we should enter in and enjoy this fruit. How is your expectation? And last thing is this statement, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. This is how you and I can receive what God has to offer. I love this statement that Mary makes. She she makes the statement and it's like she disappears. Do whatever he tells you. And she's so confident that if they simply do what he says to do, miracles are on the way. And she just probably goes back to her table and enjoys the rest of the wedding. Let the celebration continue. What she's saying is, give up your agenda for his. Stop trying to do this on your own. There's two parts to this. Do whatever he says. The first thing is that we need to say, I'm out. I'm out of wine. I'm out of my own planning and effort and my own way of doing things. I've come to the end of that. And I got to admit that I'm out. I've run out. I've run out of gas. My tank is empty. And I need your intervention. My plan has left me high and dry. My agenda does not get it done in my own life. That's the first part of what she's asking here. And the second amazing thing when it comes to receiving it, I first have to say, God, I I just, I, I give up on my plans. Your ways are higher than my ways. I receive your agenda for my life. And the second remarkable thing is that you and I, when we do that, when we give up our agenda for God's agenda, we literally receive all of the credit and benefit for what Jesus does. It's interesting, at the end of this story, there's people coming up to the groom and people coming up to the master of ceremonies and saying, man, this is the greatest wedding I've ever been to. This is awesome. This is incredible. Where did you get this wine? I mean, most people, they bring out the good wine first, and then after everybody gets drunk, then they don't care what kind of wine you're giving them. You can give them the Carlo Rossi or whatever, but you have saved the best for last. They're not coming up to Jesus and saying it. They're coming up to these guys that have simply said and been a part of do whatever he tells you, and that's how it is for you and I. God is keeping the good wine in your life, perhaps for this moment. So two questions to pull this together before we pray. And the first one is simply this. is simply, have you given up your agenda for his? And if not, are you willing? Have you given up your agenda for his? And if not, are you willing? 
And then secondly, maybe for all of us, is today a day that we need to simply say, I'm going to raise my expectations. I'm going to believe God for some things that maybe perhaps I've stopped believing for. Maybe perhaps I feel like it's not important enough to God. Or perhaps I feel like it's just way too big. I would invite all of us to say yes to both of those things. God, I I say yes to your agenda over mine. Maybe for you, this might be the first time you've really said that in your heart. You've said, God, I want your your life. I, I, I did that at 18 years old. I remember it clearly. cashing my agenda in and saying, I'm taking your agenda. And then it's been a series of agenda exchanges, and I'll do one again today. That's life in Christ. And then taking the credit for things that I have nothing to do with and you have nothing to do with, it's just God's good work in our lives. And then secondly, saying yes to, I'm raising my expectations, not because of me, but because of God and who God is. This is the God of the impossible. And I'm believing for some of those impossible things to become possible in my life. So Father, all around this room as we pray, You know every thought. You know every situation, every heartache, every challenge, every invitation. So God, meet us in this place on this day, in this moment. Pray for all of us, God, that we would have the courage to let go of an agenda in our own lives that fails us, that leaves us high and dry at times exchange it and accept the agenda you have for us. Your will be done. And secondly, God, I pray that expectation would arise in this room. Dreaming and hopes and faith, abundance, the release of abundance into our lives that we would be wide open for it. Nothing is too difficult for you, God. So we receive that as a people on this day, and we give you thanks. Let the celebration begin in our lives. Before we close today, can we stand together and as much as you know this song and can sing along, or just want to say to God, use me, whether it's sung or just in lifting hands, say, Jesus, in whatever way you have for us today, use me. If you can use anything, Lord, you can use me. If you can use anything, Lord, you can use me.